Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, rising for the holiday break. We've had a very productive parliamentary session. MPs wrap up their fall sitting, but the government's signature gun bill has not been passed. So where does it go and what can we expect when Parliament comes back in the new year? We will speak with Government House Leader Mark Holland. Also... The ball is in the Premier's court. Ottawa and the provinces are still in a stalemate over healthcare dollars and accountability. So how do doctors on the front lines feel about the political bickering? And it includes at least 20 known species at risk. Taking steps to protect the Seal River watershed, what a deal would mean for biodiversity in Canada and for reconciliation. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Parliament has now risen for the year, wrapping up the last question period for 2022, despite ongoing challenges with inflation, health care and the government's own signature gun bill. Still, MPs are now free to go back to their ridings, not scheduled to return until January 30 in the new year. So as Parliament wraps up, we are taking stock of the last 12 weeks, also looking ahead to 2023. And to do that, we're now joined this evening by the Government House Leader, Mark Holland. Mr. Holland, thanks uh, for being here. Thanks for having me. Listen, I, I, I do want to begin, as much as there's a lot to review here, I, we have to acknowledge the fact that your colleague, Jim Carr, he, he has now passed. And I'm wondering uh, what you're feeling right now as we extend our condolences to you. How are you feeling? How do you want Mr. Carr to be remembered? Uh, well, I had a conversation, and maybe it, 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 this sums it all up. I had a meeting with Jim Carr uh, just last week, um, last Thursday, and we were talking about his private member's bill, and we were talking about him giving a speech as his farewell to Parliament. And uh, Jim knew that um, he didn't have a lot of time left. Uh, I had no idea that it was as little time as it was. But uh, Jim uh, was then, uh, in the face of, of his own death, the person that he was his entire life which is somebody 100% focused on other people, um, asking about uh, you know, how he could ensure that his PMB, because he was so uh, passionate about, uh, about it and the prairies and the difference that it could make, um, uh, talking about his colleagues, uh, talking about uh, other people that he cared about uh, and what he wanted for them. Uh, you know, it was, he's just uh, that once in a lifetime kind of individual who, uh, lights up every room they're in, um, who pours all of their energy into other people, uh, who uh, is an inspiration, uh, and, 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 you know, did it right to his last day. You know, his whole life was about service uh, right to his last breath. And I, and I think for a lot of us here, not just within the Liberal Caucus, but I think our entire parliamentary family, uh, he's going to have a very long legacy. Uh, he's somebody that uh, was a mentor and somebody that we want to emulate. Well, it was beautiful to hear the tributes today, so thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, let's move on now to, to the last 12 weeks and, and the, the weeks ahead, because at this point, here you are, the last day before the holiday break, uh, but really you leave without passing your government's own signature gun bill. Uh, has the amendment on assault weapons undermined the original intent of banning that handgun bill? 
Uh, no. I think that what's happened is we've, we've uh, opened up an important conversation on, uh, on, on two uh, very sensitive fronts that are incredibly important. On the one hand, uh, we have those that have been victimized by gun crime, uh, who've lost loved ones, uh, who are themselves been victims, um, who are uh, demanding action to ensure that uh, weapons that are capable of mass destruction, weapons that are, um, are, are uh, assault-style uh, weapons, uh, are taken off the streets. And we all need to be able to look at the victims of gun violence in the eyes and say that we've done everything that we can. And that's an important piece of that. Uh, on, at the same token, uh, we know uh, how important hunting is uh, as, a, uh, as something that's an essential part of the life of so many Canadians. Uh, not just in a contemporary sense, but over many generations. My grandfather was a hunter. Uh, and we know that hunters want to make sure that they can continue um, that, uh, that lifestyle uh, that's so important to them and such an important part of, uh, of Canada. And so uh, there's a lot of sensitivity there to make sure uh, that they're not impacted and their ability to hunt isn't impacted. Uh, those two things are, are, are in no way contradictory. Uh, and I think this is a moment and an opportunity to step back and make sure that we do get these assault-style weapons off the street uh, and that we don't allow it to impact hunters. And so there's an important conversation that I think is taking place at committee, and it's going to take place with stakeholders over the, the next coming months. And as so often the case in Parliament when we're dealing with very contentious issues, it takes some time to find that middle ground, and it takes conversations, and, it, and you have to work through um, the, the sensitivities that are there. And so that's what's happening. That's, I think, very appropriate in this instance. Uh, and I think uh, good progress is being made. Mm -hmm. As you say, talked about um, amongst committee members, but, but certainly some members do want this whole bill to go back for further study. Will that happen in the new year? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we're looking at amendments uh, and how we can uh, make changes uh, to make sure that uh, any guns that are used in hunting are not um, captured um, uh, in the legislation that's brought forward, uh, making sure that we're talking to stakeholders to combat a lot of disinformation that's out of there, frankly, about the bill. Um, you know, I, I think there are those that are actively looking for solutions, and I would suggest that there are those that are looking for problems and to exacerbate uh, this for political advantage. And given the sensitivities that I just spoke about, um, uh, I, I think that's highly inappropriate. I, I think that it's very important for us to focus on solutions and uh, that's very much where our mind is as we work through this. Mm -hmm. Now, you've heard the criticism, and, and I hear what you're saying right now, but uh, one of the criticisms has been, or at least one of the questions has been, is why did the government not consult more broadly before actually bringing forward this amendment at, at what's been described as the 11th hour? Uh, did the government fumble there? Should it have uh, consulted more broadly? Well, I think, you know, uh, that's for others to ask. I mean, I, I think what we're focused on is finding solutions. Uh, and, uh, and, and I don't know any, uh, any government uh, at any point in time uh, that's dealt with highly contentious issues, um, that, that didn't have, uh, have to take some time to, to consider uh, all of the different uh, stakeholder groups uh, and opinions um, that are incumbent within that. And so uh, that's a natural part of the process. Uh, the, uh, this is a complicated uh, and difficult situation uh, that it, where uh, it is absolutely essential that we take action. Uh, and so as we move through this process, uh, making sure that we listen, uh, that we react to feedback, uh, that we ensure that we're, we're getting it right, uh, is a part of what we want to do uh, with, with everything that we're doing legislatively. Um, and, uh, you know, I think mistakes are, uh, in my experience in life, uh, mistakes are when uh, you don't listen to feedback, 
um, when you don't, when you refuse to act, uh, when information is put in front of you, and when you uh, move forward and do something uh, without considering uh, the implications of it. And that, and that's not what we're doing here. We're 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 taking a step, um, uh, taking a step back, making sure the legislation is gotten right. We have a clear, uh, as I've articulated, a clear understanding of what our priorities are here. Um, so, you know, we're going to make sure that we get it done right. Mm -hmm. I also want to talk about your uh, supply and confidence agreement with the NDP because a, a lot of work has been done with that in the last 12 weeks. But in the document, it also mentions progress on pharmacare by the end of 2023. So is that something that your government will be moving on uh, when you return at the end of January? Uh, well, the end of, uh, uh, you know, the end of January, uh, there's a lot of conversations, frankly, that need to take place with all of the, uh, the other parties. And, and this is one of the things that we do. We're going to take a little bit of time uh, for Christmas and to go back and connect with our communities and our families. Uh, and then we jump right into conversations about what the priorities for the new year will be. And that will be with all parties. Because I want to uh, really highlight again, we have a supply and confidence agreement. Uh, that means that we agree to uh, uh, work with the NDP to have their support for supply and confidence votes, but there's a universe of uh, legislation that, and, uh, and priorities that has to be accomplished outside of that. And, and as is quite normal and is to be expected, the NDP and ourselves have a lot of differences. Uh, you would have seen those played out in a lot of different ways. Uh, but we've been able to work through them uh, and be able to get a lot done, not just with the NDP, but uh, with Parliament generally, and that's what we want to continue doing. I think the Supply and Confidence Agreement generally has worked very well, um, that we've been able to, uh, to, to have a high degree of communication and collaboration to understand each other. But I don't think it's just with the NDP. I, I, I have to say that uh, over the, uh, the last while, the conversations with the Bloc Québécois, as an example, they've been very productive. Um, and that, uh, as well, we're making progress and having conversations with the Conservatives. And I, and I think I just want to highlight, take a moment to highlight the fact that, I, that that's what Canadians are expecting right now. We're, we're in a highly tumultuous uh, global environment right now uh, that is very challenged. And, and, and they're not interested, Canadians, in seeing us exacerbate uh, differences and, and focus on problems. They really want us to see us focusing on solutions. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're coming into the new session uh, focused on. Okay, you speak of solutions, but of course, as Parliament rises, there's still this crisis happening in healthcare. Uh, mm -hmm. You see it in pediatric hospitals right across the country. Uh, at this point, there seems to be a, an impasse between provinces and the federal government. What type of movement is going to happen there over the next few weeks? What do you say to people that are frustrated to, to see politicians rise for a winter break when healthcare is still in crisis? Well, I think it's important to know that while well, the House is lifting, um, and that means that there's a temporary pause on legislative action, uh, that the work of the government never ceases. Uh, that uh, that our work on healthcare and any number and any myriad of other issues continues each and every day, uh, and that with respect to healthcare, we've been very clear. Uh, we're ready to come to the aid of provinces with additional resources and support, but it has to be con uh, tied to outcomes. Uh, Canadians know that money in, uh, on its own is not enough, that they have to see clear metrics um, that, that their uh, access to health care and the health care they receive is improving. And if, if they don't see assurances of that, and all it is is money, then frankly, uh, they would have a great deal of reason to be cynical. So what we've said to the provinces is we're ready to help, but Canadians need to be able to see tangible uh, results. They need to be able to see the metrics to prove that's working. And of course, that is, is something that um, uh, we're 100% committed to. So we need to act with urgency, but it isn't enough just to take some kind of placebo action. Uh, it has to be uh, rooted in actual tangible change 
that's improving the health care outcomes for Canadians. Mark Holland, thank you so much for the time tonight. Thank you. Well, as Parliament ends its sitting for the holiday break, as I said to the government House leader, hospitals across the country are in crisis. Children's hospitals in particular are inundated with respiratory cases right now. Primary care doctors are impossible to find and nurses are burnt out and leaving the system. Now, the provinces are asking for more money. The Trudeau government, for its part, is asking for modernization and accountability. But there is a stalemate and the two sides are not meeting. For his thoughts on the issue, we're now joined by Dr. Rod Lim. He is the Director for Pediatric Emergency at Children's Hospital at the London Health Sciences Centre. Dr. Lim, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Now, before we actually talk about the political situation, I, I was hoping you might describe for us what's happening at the Children's Hospital right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult time. As you know, we've had sustained difficulties for over three months now. Uh, and unfortunately, it is not letting up at all. Uh, although RSV uh, in young children seems to be steady at this point, we are being overwhelmed by influenza A cases. Uh, we have not only uh, large numbers of people coming to our department, but the degree of illness and acuity is, is significant. And that makes huge challenges for us to coordinate care for children, uh, being, uh, being enabled to move children between hospitals, in order to uh, meet the needs of the community. So it's, it's extremely difficult right now. So extremely difficult, as you say, to meet the needs of, of patients. What about staff? How are they coping through all of this? Yeah, that's the other side is that uh, the staff that are, are continuing to show up every day, uh, they're absolutely exhausted. They've been through the pandemic, and I think this is worse. Uh, they've had absolutely no break. A lot have left, uh, and we have staff shortages, uh, not just in our department, but across the country. Uh, so we are working short-staffed, uh, trying to be creative, the people that show up are going without breaks, uh, working overtime, really just incredibly dedicated individuals under extremely difficult circumstances. Okay, that's the backdrop. And really, it does paint that picture of crisis that I was talking about. But, you know, against it is this political discussion about uh, funding and modernization. What are your <coughs> thoughts uh, on the debate that's happening right now? Uh, you know, I think it's an important debate because uh, I think beyond the immediate crisis that we're seeing, uh, the, the need to write staff and right size resources in order to meet the needs of our growing communities is just so important. Uh, and I know that uh, these debates are, are important, but we would welcome uh, any additional support uh, that is uh, possible uh, in order to help us in this current situation. Mm -hmm. Now, right sizing, right staffing, what do you mean by that? Well, it, it, it's not unusual at all um, for the winter time to have to cause surges, especially in the pediatric populations. We know that this has been occurring for as long as I've been a, a pediatric emergency doctor for over two decades. Uh, and so with the addition of COVID as a circulating virus at the exact same time, we know that now and in the future, these surges are going to happen, now, hopefully not as bad as this year. Uh, but they're going to continue to happen. And for a long time, the prevailing thought was to run hospitals as efficiently as possible. And when you run things that efficiently, where you're almost full at all times, it does not allow that flexibility and capability to surge up in times of crisis or in times of increased uh, demand. So I think beyond this year's discussion, we need to have a discussion around right sizing so that we aren't scrambling and, and attempting to to pull out all the stops just to meet the, the basic needs of the community. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, the provinces, uh, many of them have surpluses right now, and some premiers are being criticized, uh, criticized rather, 
for not investing that surplus into health care. Is that frustrating to hear? Well, I think uh, uh, right now in the state of, our, of healthcare, I don't think there's a, a single worker that isn't frustrated by a lot of factors. Um, you know, we want a way out of this, mostly because we care about uh, the children and the patients that we provide care for. Uh, and it's very discouraging to to try so hard just to meet, you know, the, the demands. Um, and the public has been incredible. We've seen so many people in chairs and in hallways and they're incredibly understanding, uh, which just tells us how supportive the public has, has been for us. So we're hoping that uh, that governments, uh, I think they're very much aware of the, the issues. We're hoping that they're going to come up with uh, with creative and innovative solutions uh, that mirror the, a lot of the solutions that have been occurring at the hospital level and, and, the, and the group level, where every day people are trying to be innovative in order to meet that gap. Now, the provinces are blaming uh, the Trudeau government uh, and the prime minister in particular for not stepping forward to talk about their demands. The uh, prime minister uh, in a recent interview suggested that provinces and territories need to take uh, the lead and take the next step in terms of breaking this impasse. What would you say to political leaders right now, given the challenge that you're facing at the ground level, what do you want political leaders to know? Well, I think they all know the magnitude of the problem and they clearly uh, care about their constituents and, and the population that they serve. Uh, I think the most important thing to tell them is, is that time of, is just of the essence. And that sometimes helps drive negotiation because uh, provinces and the federal government have their own perspectives that are all important. But unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to waste. The crisis is now. It's going to be very, very tough over the holiday season with influenza surging in adults and intergenerational mixing that's going to occur over the holidays. Um, so we really need uh, the the governments to work together uh, because there's there's big problems to solve and you know if there's delays that is a, a significant um, uh, a problem for our society so we really need to get on this uh, and work together. Dr. Rod Lim, thank you again for the time today. Thank you. Well, as biodiversity continues to take center stage at COP15 in Montreal, a significant announcement was made today. It involved both the federal and the Manitoba environment ministers, the minister responsible for Parks Canada, and the Seal River Watershed Alliance. Now, these parties made a commitment to assess the feasibility for an Indigenous protected area. Take a listen now to the environment minister, Stephen Guilbeault. Canada cannot uh, achieve uh, as a nation our, the, the goals we've set for ourselves for, for 2025 or 2030 without the leadership of Indigenous people when it comes to conservation and protecting nature. And, and we're working really hard towards achieving this goal. But we also want to work with our provinces and territories to, to achieve those goals. We need to work with, with provinces and territories to achieve those goals. With more, we're now joined by Stephanie Thorassi. She is the executive director for the Seal River Watershed Alliance. Ms. Thorassi, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I think it might be worthwhile to, to talk a bit more about the Seal River Watershed. It's located in northern Manitoba, described as one of the most intact watersheds in the world. Tell us a bit more about it. It is 99.97% pristine. That's what the scientists tell me anyway. <laughs> it is a beautiful place that has no roads. It has no industry, no development, no hydro. It is the same as it's been since my great, great, 
great-grandparents used to uh, be nomadic and follow the caribou herds. So the land is 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 in a beautiful state there still. So pristine and beautiful. We're, we're seeing images of it right now. Environmentally, though, why is it considered so important? Well, it's home to 23 species at risk. We have polar bears, barrenland grizzlies. We have beluga whales at the mouth of the estuary. We have wolverines. We have a, a giant amount of birds that come through that summer with us in the winter. I mean, pardon me, that summer with us in the summer. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of um, environmental reasons, like the carbon that is stored there. We have 2 billion tons of carbon in the watershed that uh, is uh, sequestering just by leaving it in the ground. So we're, we're so happy that we're able to have a space like this that is not only good for us, but good for the planet. Mm -hmm. and, and that is a point being made about how it is this carbon sink. And as you say, all these species, as COP15 comes together to talk about preserving biodiversity and species on this earth. And you, you allude to it a little bit by talking about your great, great grandparents. But there is this, this deep connection between the watershed and Indigenous First Nations. Can you talk to us about that relationship? Yeah, the, the lands of the health of the lands and our community members are truly intertwined. You cannot have one without the other in the way that we see the land. We're not better than the land. We're not above it. It's really hard for us to have this idea of managing it when really it's always been about stewardship and about existing together in a way that supports each other healthy lands equals healthy people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the commitment today it, it is a feasibility assessment that's that's how it's listed for creating this indigenous area protected area talk to us first and foremost what does that mean a feasibility assessment and what do you hope comes out of that well, feasibility assessment is the first step in creating a protected area officially uh, with our province and with Canada. We are looking at all of the, the traditional knowledge reasons why this supports uh, protected area establishment, as well as all the science reasons. So we're collecting all of this information together and uh, we're creating this study that talks about how successful this would be according to the information we bring together. I'm so proud of all of the work that the Alliance has been doing for the past three years. We've been uh, working on our homework and we've been uh, creating these documents and, and doing a lot of um, reports and, and hiring science people to do these reports for us so that we could find out some of this information ahead of time. So we're really looking forward to being able to to stacking up all these reports and handing them over to the individuals doing the feasibility study because um, w we've also been doing some research on ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if, if you don't mind, there are a number of First Nations attached with the Alliance. Could you just list them out? Who, who has been working on this? 
Thank you. We are a coalition of people working together who uh, care for the land, care for our backyards. We are Northlands Denisotina First Nation, Barrenlands First Nation, Opipinapiwin Cree Nation, and the Saisidena First Nation, who, who are in the heart of the watershed. Mm-hmm. So obviously, as we talk about this environmental component, there's also what seems to be a reconciliation component to this. Uh, what does it mean to you, for you, to, to actually hear ministers of the Crown acknowledge that the power and the importance of Indigenous stewardship? Yeah, you know, our community was accused of being bad stewards at one time. In 1954, we were forced to forcibly relocated from our home and our territory and one of our our seasonal stops along where we used to subsistence hunt. And um, in doing so, a third of our population died because of not being connected to the land. And in 73, our nation moved ourselves back to the land and 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 back to that connection that we knew we needed to be uh, thriving out in such a place. So when I hear them talk about reconciliation and and moving us forward in a good way, I think about my parents who had to eat at the garbage dump to survive. I think about all of the elders who are no longer with us that fought for the land and who um, have been guiding us uh, up until now. You know, I think about all of their words and and the work that they've done. So when I think about stewardship, you know, this is something that we've always done. We've always been caretakers. We've always been um, connected and in a good way, a waste nothing culture. So having that uh, recognized now, I think is a really, a meaningful path for uh, our community to do really great work for this space. Stephanie Thorassi, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for that. And that is our program for this evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Join us again tomorrow. We'll be joined by Melanie Jolie, the Foreign Affairs Minister. We will talk China policy, Haiti and Ukraine. But as we say goodbye for tonight, we do want to share a moment with you out of Rideau Hall. Olympic gold medalist Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer receiving the Order of Canada today, an acknowledgement for all they have done for this country and their sport. We'll see you again tomorrow.